uh, preparation time for Easter, for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, we celebrate Jesus every day, don't get me wrong. I celebrate his resurrection every day, but this is the day that the church worldwide sort of recognizes uh, is the day that Christ rose from the dead. So we're looking up to that day as we prepare, and so it's a good time, I think, to start a new sermon series. Actually, Lent began on Wednesday, last Wednesday, um, which was Ash Wednesday. Um, we did have an Ash Wednesday service here. I saw a group of FBC folks that came out to join with High Rock Church. It was actually a very, very powerful time together. Uh, but we're going to start a new series on the book of Revelation. Revelation. I'm not going to do the whole book of Revelation. We're just going to do the last four chapters. So what did we do the last, since the beginning of January? We did the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. Now we're going to do the last four chapters of the Bible. So we're going to do the bookends, basically. We're going literally from the very beginning of the Bible to literally the very end of the Bible, where we learn about the Christian hope of heaven. So we sort of ended the Genesis series with this hope for heaven, this coming time in which God would restore the world. Well, guess what? We're going to look at that over these next coming weeks as we prepare for Easter Sunday. I love the book of Revelation. Um, a lot of people are afraid of it. They're a little bit uh, uh, intimidated by the book of Revelation. Uh, that's because it's filled with symbolism, clearly, from beginning to end. Dragons and beasts and all these just different things happening. Uh, it's filled with a lot of mystery. We're not exactly sure what everything means in the book of Revelation. In fact, you'll have, you know, if you put, they say if you put 10 Baptists in a room, you'll have 11 different opinions. I don't know how that works, but that's the idea. You'll have different opinions as to how, uh, what is being said there. And it's written in a type of literature, different type of genre, that doesn't exist anymore, that we don't use anymore. It's called apocalyptic literature, where you wrote about big events that are happening in the world in, these, in this symbolic language. Daniel is written like that, part of Daniel is written like that in the book of Revelation. Um, having said all that, I think Revelation may be my favorite book in the Bible and perhaps the most powerful book. <laughs> the most powerful book in the entire scripture. Uh, why is that? Because what it speaks about is a powerful and deep truth. Uh, la- yesterday, I listened to the entire book of Revelation from beginning to end. It was when I was out walking. Um, and just got the whole big picture of it. It is incredible what it's telling us about God and about his people, and about how this whole thing comes to an end. And what's the purpose of this? What's the purpose of the book of Revelation? It's meant to keep us faithful. (laughs) It's meant to keep us persevering in our lives, in the Christian life, to keep on keeping on. It's meant to give us a a spirit of peace in this life. So we're not full of worry and anxiety and fear, but a sense of peace that God is in control and he's working out his plan. And that this is what's coming. So no matter what happens from this day until the days we're going to be looking at, um, no matter what happens, this is the end. This is the outcome. Heaven is coming. When I say heaven, I'm using heaven as a summary of all that's to come. A new heavens and a new earth and when God and his people are united together. No matter what happens, no matter how my life goes, if, if I end up getting cancer, if I end up with some heart disease that takes my life, if I end up in some car accident, and I mentioned those three because those are the most common means of death, in our country at least, I know what's coming. Heaven is coming. If I end up living a long life until I lose my sight and my mind starts to go, I still know what's coming. <laughs> Glory, heaven is coming. If I end up on the mission field 
and get eaten by cannibals, which has happened to missionaries before. I still know what's coming. Nothing will separate us from Christ. This is what's coming. No matter what happens, it's only a matter of days, of weeks, of years, maybe decades, maybe centuries. But this day is coming. I like what one um, theologian, J.C. Ryle, said, a few more summers, a few more winters, a few more sicknesses, a few more sorrows, a few more weddings, a few more funerals, a few more meetings, and a few more partings. And then what? Well, the grass will be growing over our graves. <laughs> who knows how long it will be, but the day is certainly coming which we pass on from this life. And for those whose hope is in Christ, we will be with him forever. Praise God, because heaven is coming. We're going to look at Revelation 19. We're going to start there, looking today at the first 10 verses. The first 10 verses of the book of Revelation chapter 19. And uh, you can follow along with me. There is an outline in your bulletin if you want to take notes, see where we're going. Um, there's a Bible in front of you where you can look on the screen and just follow us there. We read these words in Revelation 19. After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, if you've never read Revelation, I like the clapping. Just the word is powerful enough, right? But if you've never read it, you're maybe saying, what is all the symbolism? What does all this mean? We're going to go through it piece by piece, and hopefully you can see it's being drawn out of the passage, out of the text of Scripture. Uh, this is something, uh, as a pastor, I, I love the book of Revelation. I, I always want to preach on it, but I don't know if I was ready until now. So I've been a pastor here, your lead guy, for eight uh, years, and maybe now I'm ready to begin preaching on part of the book of Revelation. All right, so that's where we're at right now. We'll see the Lord help to make his word clear to us. But looking at verses 1 through 5, we see that John, John is, this is John the Apostle, one of Jesus' 
intimate disciples, one of the twelve and one of the inner three that he spent an, an, an especially great amount of time with. He's the one, uh, and by the way, tradition has it, he's the only one who dies of old age. Every other one is martyred. But here he is um, on the island of Patmos, and he receives this vision. A lot has happened before this in the book of Revelation. So I'd encourage you to go ahead and read it. And by the way, there's no S at the end of Revelation. Just Revelation. There's only one. All right? So, but I give you a chance to just go ahead and read through the book. Um, John is speaking to churches. He's writing this for the churches. Actually, Jesus is speaking to John for the churches. This is not written just for some philosophical inquiry. Uh, this is written to encourage and to strengthen the churches. And really, it's written for us. We are the church. We are a church today, a local church today. We're part of the church, universal. This is written for us. It's written to strengthen and encourage our faith. But he describes here a multitude in heaven. Uh, who are these people? I think we're pretty much universally agreed, or at least theologians are, that this is referring to all those who have died in Christ. All God's people gathered together. All those who have passed on from this world, who, have, who, have no, who are no longer alive at the time that he's describing. All those in glory, sometimes called the church triumphant. All of God's people gathered together from every tongue and tribe and nation waiting for this day, gathered in heaven. And what do they say? Hallelujah. <laughs> the day has finally come. And hallelujah is, uh, is a word we're probably familiar with. Um, I, I like what Mitch always gives this uh, illustration. Do you know what the Korean word for hallelujah is? It's the same as the German word, and the same as the uh, English word, and the same as the Chinese word. Hallelujah is the same in every different language, and it literally means praise the Lord. Halal, praise. Hallelujah is a command for a group. Pray, you praise, and Yah is short for Yahweh. Praise the Lord. That's what he's saying. So they're saying praise the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, that term praise the Lord, you'd think it would be all over the Bible. Not. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. It only occurs four times in the New Testament. All four, right here. Revelation 19, 1 through 10. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The day has finally come. We're at the end. Why do they praise the Lord? Interesting enough, he begins this first section, praises the Lord for his perfect justice. The great prostitute is judged, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And you say, wait a minute, what is he talking about here? What's this great prostitute? Well, he tells us earlier of the great prostitute, sometimes called the prostitute of Babylon. Uh, Babylon was an ancient city, no longer really relevant by the time John wrote, but used to be the capital of the Babylonian Empire and used to be the world power that oppressed people, including Israel. In John's day, he tells us, this is Revelation 17, we'll have this up on the screen for you. Um, I'm just kind of skipping through some of this, but just to, just to clarify, if you want to know what something means in, in the book of Revelation, Look at the rest of the book. See if it tells you somewhere else what it is. Well, he tells us here. Come, 17, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and ten horns that carries her. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. City on the seven hills. Even today we call it that, but it was known as that. Rome is the city on the seven hills. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power. And the woman that you saw is the great city. There's only one truly great city um, in terms of the eyes of the world back in his day, and that is Rome, that has dominion over the kings of the earth. 
He's saying Rome, which sits on the beast, which is the Roman Empire, the whole world, has control here, and it's her day has come. Her oppression of God's people, her rebellion against God has come to an end. Chapter 18, the chapter right before this, he describes her fall, and I think we'll have that on the screen as well if you can see it. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, and the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. In other words, they committed idolatry served Rome's gods in rebellion against the true living God, will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Alas, alas, for the great city. What city was like the great city? Now you might say, well, if this just refers to Rome, is it come and gone? Has no relevance for us today. I mean, Roman Empire is pretty much gone, and Rome itself is kind of a minimal city in this world. But I think John uses Rome as a, in a sense, a representation of any worldly kingdom, of all the fallen kingdoms of this world that are in constant rebellion against God and who oppress his people. And friends, for 2,000 years, that hasn't changed. <laughs> There's always been, God's people are always in the minority, always in, uh, in some sense, more or less in opposition to the kingdoms of this world praises God for his justice upon whom he refers to here the great prostitute on Rome and its empire. Then he refers to the 24 elders and the four angels. I just want to explain real briefly who they are. 24 elders we don't know a whole lot about except this. There were 12 apostles and there were 12 tribes of Israel, 12 patriarchs, probably a reference to God's people through all the ages, the leaders of God's people through all the ages, pre-Christ and the patriarchs after Christ and the apostles, the four angels, the four living creatures are probably four powerful angels. And what do they do? They join with the great multitude. Praise God, all you servants. Fear him, small and great. <laughs> From the kings and the nobles to the peasant in the field, everyone join in praising God. Now, why this celebration of judgment? That may have stuck out to you, maybe, maybe not. I mean, he's, he's celebrating the fall of Rome, celebrating its destruction and its torment, and these people ultimately receiving justice in the end. I think it's easy, in a sense, for us to live, we, you know, we live in, in relative comfort, <laughs> mostly free from oppression. Um, you know, if, if you get criticized for being a Christian, um, that's a lot in this country, right? I mean, it's really, we don't receive a lot of oppression for our faith. Some people have, I've talked to some in this congregation who have been ostracized from their family or Maybe something even worse. So that does happen. I'm not saying there is no opposition to the Christian faith, but we need to remember that we are the exception. We are the exception, not the rule. Uh, throughout the history of the ch Christian church, people have been not only criticized, but persecuted to the point of being fed to lions, burned at the stake, beheaded, and things even far worse than that. More than just ostracization. And friends, not just the history of Christianity, Christianity throughout the world today. Again, we're the exception, not the rule. Right now, today, I would imagine Sunday, uh, there will be millions of Chinese Christians who will meet in their homes with the doors locked in fear that the authorities don't find out that they're meeting, drag them all off to break up their home and drag their pastor off to jail. That's the norm. And certainly in other countries, like in the Middle East, 
there's even fear in, in, in um, Africa as well, fear of death, that someone's going to show up with machetes and take care of it with the, in their own hands. That's the norm. We're the exception. And what they're doing here is saying, God, bring justice. God, bring freedom from our oppression. We're waiting on you. We, we, we haven't put our hope in taking vengeance ourselves. <laughs> we haven't put our hope in worldly systems. We put our hope in you, and we're waiting the day that you bring justice, true and eternal justice, to this world. I think there's a difference, friends, between celebrating revenge, which is not what they're doing, and celebrating justice, God bringing eternal justice. They're not celebrating the suffering of those who fall in this last time. They're celebrating the fact that God is righting all the wrongs. He's fixing all that's broken. See, friends, throughout much of the Christian faith, people have asked this question, where are you, God? How long before you bring justice? Why do you let your people get arrested and sit in jail for years? Why is it that people are knocking at the doors and dragging Christians from their homes and cutting off hands? Where are you, God? In fact, that's the question that is asked in the very beginning of Revelation. The martyrs under the altar, those who have lost their lives for their faith, cry out to God in Revelation 6.10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. How long until this day comes? And friends, what the promise we see here in Revelation to all those who are suffering for their faith is, it's coming. Be patient and wait. And when the day comes, say, hallelujah, God is bringing true and eternal justice. Justice is coming for us all. Coming for us all. Justice is here in part and we should fight for justice now. So understand that. God sets up police, courts, governors. Uh, Romans 13 talks about this. Uh, the, the state authorities are there for a reason. Now, sometimes they're, they're not doing a good job, and there's a lot of injustice, but nevertheless, God gives us justice to some degree in this world, and as Christians, we're called to respect that justice as best we can, to recognize that God has placed it there, and as, as much as we can obey authority in this world, we should do so, uh, and we should pursue it. Uh, and everyone knows who Lady Justice is? Lady Justice, we have a, there's a statue in Washington, D.C. This is not the one in D.C. I don't, oh, maybe it is the one in D.C. I can't remember. But you may not be able to see it right now, but Lady Justice holds a scale in one hand, and then and she has a blindfold over her eyes. And you might see that and say, wait a minute, is she trying to say that she doesn't see all the injustice in this world? No, the idea is justice should be fair. It should not be based on uh, on somebody's race or ethnicity or social class or, or gender or anything else. But we know justice isn't always like that in this world. <laughs> we know that sometimes the bad guys get away with it. Or do they? What Revelation reminds us is, you know, God is the one who will sort out perfect justice in the end. Yes, Joseph Mengele got away with most of his atrocities during World War II. Escaped and lived in anonymity for all of his experimentations on Jewish kids. But he didn't get away in the end because God will bring justice. Stalin may have overseen the murder of millions and he may have shook his fist at God as he laid in his deathbed, but he will face justice. Make no mistake about it. Charles Manson, Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy, 
they made a movie about Ted Bundy. I haven't seen it, but some people worry that it's glorifying. Ted Bundy was a monster of a man. He would suffocate his victims until they passed out and then stop so they could come back. And then he would suffocate them again and again. He was cruel. Will there be justice in the end? Yes, there will be. And you can say that to the family of anyone who mourns the loss of someone who has been, whose lives have been taken in an unjust way. God will bring justice in the end. What about for me? I mean, I'm not innocent. You're not innocent. Maybe I haven't done some of these atrocities of the people I just mentioned. But I'm afraid of God's justice upon me for my sin. But God gave us grace and that he poured justice on Jesus for us. Because when we talk about the gospel, understand, we're not saying God said, eh, that's no big deal. Your sins don't make much of a difference. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God saw our sin in all of its ugliness and its wickedness, and he poured his wrath, his judgment on Christ, who willingly laid down his life for us, in our place. He bore the burden of our sin on himself, and we hide ourselves in him. So friends, as we await that day, the day of God's justice, let's snatch people from the flames. That's what the scripture tells us to do. Tell them about grace. Tell them to look not only to the justice of God in the end, but to his mercy now for sinners like me and like you. We praise the Lord because he will bring perfect justice. Praise the Lord because he will love us forever. Verse 6 through 8. Praise the Lord because he will love us forever. Uh, John envisions a wedding. <laughs> That's the next thing he sees. Uh, a voice of a great multitude again cries out. Now notice this is the same great multitude, right? But it is even louder now. So God's justice, that's great. Something even better than that we have to praise God for. It roars like a river, like the sound of rushing water. Have you ever stood before a fast-paced rushing river? That's what he's talking about, the sound of a roar or a waterfall, like uh, going to Niagara Falls on the Maid of the Mist and approaching right up to the waterfall, and you hear the thunder, the roar of the waters, or the sound of a, a thunderstorm. I mean, it's just so loud and ear-piercing. Praise. Hallelujah. And what are they praising for God for here? That God reigns, rejoice, give him the glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride is ready. <laughs> He's praising God for a great wedding that's coming. Uh, again, what is this all about, this great wedding? Uh, again, Revelation is, is continually using symbolism to bring out a deep and profound truth. What is it? The bride here is all of God's people. All of God's people throughout all of the ages as one. In the Old Testament, we see faithful Israel serving the Lord, trusting in the sacrifices, trusting that God would send a Redeemer. Now we see all those who believe in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, united together. All God's people throughout the ages. We see that, by the way, this theme is common in the Old Testament. We see it particularly in the book of Hosea. We see it in Isaiah and other places that God's people are pictured as a bride, as his wife to come. In the New Testament, look at Ephesians 5, for example. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. We see that the marriage itself in this world is only a picture of God's love for his bride people. Notice he's clothed. His bride is clothed. Remember that Adam and Eve were naked in the garden and ashamed of their sin. Well, now there is clothing for sure. And what is that clothing? White linens. <laughs> Where do the white linens come from? Notice it says they are given to her. They are granted to her. 
Uh, she didn't come up with these linens on her own. This is something that God gives to her. And what, is the white, what do the white linens uh, represent? The righteous deeds of God's people. Spirit-empowered good works that God's people do as we await the return of Christ. And again, that's something given by God, not something that we do in earning our way to God. He empowers us to live faithfully to him. A Christian who follows Jesus will have a life transformed, and his deeds or her deeds will follow suit, living in the light of his grace. But why use a wedding? Why use a wedding, of all things? Um, I have a picture of a wedding. Uh, this is, the, by the way, the most beautiful bride I've ever seen in my life. So, my unbiased opinion. So, that was a long time ago. That feels like a long, long time ago, even though it wasn't, it wasn't all that long ago, I guess. But it was right, actually, we got married right here, stood right here in this sanctuary first, and uh, that's over at Tabarro. So, this is all right here, local, my wife and I. Uh, but why a wedding? Why use a wedding to picture this final day and this final union? Well, weddings are a celebration, for one thing. Uh, weddings are supposed to be characterized by joy, by celebrating, by dancing, by singing. I mean, if you go to a wedding and everybody's gloomy, there's something wrong, right? That's not a good thing. Uh, that's a funeral. This is a wedding. This is something to celebrate for sure. This is a day of joy, of hallelujah, of praising the Lord. Uh, weddings are a bride's favorite day, usually, right? It's a, it's a day that a young woman, if, if they're called to marriage, is looking forward to, eagerly awaiting that day of being a bride. I was talking to a, a friend of mine before in, uh, uh, in, back in college, and I said, you know, I think I was preparing all the wedding plans, and I said to him, Josh, I said, uh, not, not this Josh, different Josh, I said, you know, it, it's a big deal, obviously, for the, the bride. She's, she waits her whole childhood waiting for this great, great day of a wedding. And he said to me, remember, these are college kids, he said, that's okay, because young men spend their whole time looking forward to the honeymoon. So I guess that's kind of the fair, fair trade-off there. So. But we're getting ready for this day. It's a day of anticipation. Weddings start off what? A marriage. A lifelong, committed relationship. This is the start of something new, of, a, of our relationship with God that is now deeper and more profound. And friends, that will last not just a lifetime, but forever for all eternity. This day is coming and pictured as a wedding because God unites with his people in committed relationship forever. And lastly, uh, lastly, as far as why, why a wedding, because weddings are about love, right? I mean, if, it's not, if a wedding's not about love, something is seriously wrong. God loves us. He looks at us as a bride not full of blemishes, but clothed in white. His girl, his woman, his wife, forever. That's the relationship of heaven. We who belong to Jesus, we who are part of this bride, are loved by God, cherished by him. Well, death do us part, and there is no death in heaven. <laughs> Sickness and health, richer for poor, for all eternity we're his. Friends, understand the love of God. Uh, if, if, when you think about this here, Revelation 19, think about the love of God for his people. God wants you personally to experience the love of God. 
When you put your faith in Christ as Savior and as Lord, you become part of his people, which is to become part of his bride. And he loves you. And we're talking about real love. We're not talking about infatuation. We're not talking about being smitten with us for a season. We're talking about through ups and downs, through all the hard times and all of our sin and rebellion at times, and all the difficulties where we question him, we trust him, we know that he loves us. I love what Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Trust in God and his love. Waiting that day when he will be with his people forever and ever. God works in families. As I said, marriage is a picture of this gospel. Uh, if you're married, think about that. You're, you're preparing the way. You're letting the world see a picture of God's love for his bride. If you're a husband or if you're a wife, you're picturing the love of God as you enjoy your relationship with your spouse. Parenting. <laughs> Your love as a father or mother for your child is a picture of the fatherly love of God for us. As God shows his love in every family, or we're called to show his love in every family. The local church, friends, is called to picture the love of God. We love one another the way God has loved us. We're showing ourselves and the world that God really does love us. Because if he loves you and you're demonstrating that love to one another, it shows his love is real. What is the book of 1 John says? No one has ever seen God, which is true, right? God is invisible spirit. But if we love one another, he's made manifest. He's made clear. We see him with spiritual eyes when his church loves one another rightly. Friends, praise God for the love of God. And then 9 and 10, praise the Lord because he alone is worthy of worship. Praise the Lord because he alone is worthy of worship. John tells us about his interaction with this angel at the end. This is probably the angel who has been revealing this to him the whole time through the book of Revelation. Uh, he tells us about his interaction with this angel. And the angel says, write this down. Um, thankfully, he said that to John, because that means we have the book of Revelation today. <laughs> this isn't just for you, John. You, you, this is something I want you to write down. Why are you going to write it? Because you're going to share it. You're going to share it with the seven churches that it was originally written to, and it's going to be kept by God's people, kept by the church for 2,000 years and beyond. It's going to be kept as something that we can turn to regularly as a reminder of who God is and what is to come. That blessed are, is everyone invited to this wedding. And by the way, if you're here and your faith is not yet in Jesus, we love the fact that you're here, thankful that you're here, you are invited <laughs> How do I know that? Because he's inviting everyone, everyone who hears the message of the gospel. You're invited to this great wedding of the Lamb with, his, with her groom. You're invited to be part of God's people and to enjoy his love forever. Blessed means to be happy, to be favored by someone, by God usually. Flourishing, we're invited to this supper. God's word is true, he says. He's reliable, it's trustworthy. Uh, this word, book of Revelation, is something you can depend upon as the word of God, he's telling him. And then John does what he shouldn't do, but we can't blame him for doing it. He finally falls down on his face and begins to worship the angel. <laughs> now, again, you can't blame him, can you? I mean, this is, he just received this amazing vision that's just been, you know, if you read the entire book, all of these different amazing 
fantastical images before him. And now he hears about this great wedding day, this great final feast uh, when God is united with his people forever. And John is just so overwhelmed, he just falls down at his feet and begins to worship the angel. And I love the angel's response. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't do that. Get up. I'm, I'm just a servant. I mean, I'm, I'm a nobody just like you, to, to put it bluntly there. Um, I'm just a messenger. That's all I am. You and your just other apostles, and really all Christians, you hold to the testimony of Jesus. Um, you hold as a, as a messenger of the gospel who spreads this news. You hold to this testimony just like I'm giving you a spirit of prophecy. So we're equal. That's what he's saying in the end there of verse 10. Um, you hold to the testimony of Jesus, just like I'm just giving you a spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We're on equal grounds as nothing but messengers. That's all we are. Worship God. He's the one who should be the object of our praise. Just a little word on angels, by the way. Um, this is, by the way, a reoccurring theme in um, Revelation and really in the Bible of being tempted to worship angels. Um, actually, we're told very clearly not to in Colossians. I have that quote up there, I think. <clears throat> Yeah, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's basically a harsh treatment of the body. Um, you know, fasting over long periods of time. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Here we are in the first century. It was an issue among the Christian church in Colossae. Going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Our focus should be on the head, which is Christ, and not on the worship of angels. I think we risk a danger when it comes to angels. We risk of making too much of them or making too little, by the way. They're messengers, but they're not the focus. They are, however, real, and they're at work. I think if I had to look at my own life, I've made too little of them, actually. I wonder, I only see it perhaps from a hindsight in heaven, how often God has used an angel in my life to help guide and to direct or protect. They are ministering spirits, Hebrews tells us. And they are at work in different ways, actually. Uh, Hebrew, uh, Matthew 18.10, see uh, that Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones, meaning these kids. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What does that mean? Does he sign an angel for every kid? Sounds like it. I don't know exactly what... Jesus is getting at there. But they're certainly at work in our world. Understand that angels are another creature. They are not God. They are a part of a different creation. So they're not described in Genesis as we saw, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, also understand we don't become angels. I'm not sure where that theology comes from, that I'll die someday and become an angel. Um, that never happens. You are not an angel. An angel is not you. You're two different creatures that God has made. Um, nevertheless, their angels are ministering spirits. They appear at times as messengers, and they end up doing God's will, doing something good in our world. God sends them for a purpose. But we're called, friends, to worship God alone. Don't worship angels or saints or Mary or popes or pastors or statues or images. Worship God, the living and true and eternal creator. God is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is all-powerful. Sometimes people ask me a question, can God 
And I can cut him off right mid-sentence and say, yes. Because if you're asking, can God? The answer is yes, right? Nothing that God cannot do in terms of power and ability. He will not sin, uh, but it's not an issue of power or ability. There's nothing God cannot do. He is all-powerful, and he's perfect. Uh, There's no limitations to him and to his goodness. Uh, God has been described this way in the Middle Ages, that which no greater can be conceived. I think that's a pretty good definition. It's limited in some ways because our, our understanding of conception. But if you can sort of think of something better and greater than God, you're probably too limited in your view of God, right? Because God is that which no greater can be conceived. He is truly perfect and eternal. He's a God with no beginning and no end. I remember at one time I had somebody ask me the question. They say, did you ever think about who made God? He must be really great. <laughs> Nobody made God. That's the point. He is, if something made God, that would be God. God is the eternal. He has no beginning and no end. And as we mentioned, or we've been talking about since January, he is the creator of everything in this universe. He made us for himself, and he made human beings in his own image. He's the God of the miraculous. No pro- I have no problem with miracles. I've watched, I've seen and witnessed miracles in my own life. Uh, I don't know why people, some people have such an issue with miracles. They happen. I mean, I, you can see documented studies on miracles of things that are unexplainable in natural means. Um, I can point you in that direction if you want at some point in time, but we clearly see the miraculous that happen in this world. God is a world at work. He's not just the God who set it into motion and leaves it. He's a God who's intimately at work in his creation, and he's the God who entered this world in the person of his son, which is what we celebrate in this season of the year. He came, took on human flesh, lived in perfection, and then laid down his life for sinners like me and you to make us his forever. Worship him. Worship God. Uh, Worship him now, by the way. (laughs) Uh, Worship him on Sundays when we gather together for worship. Uh, But don't limit your worship to that, to gathered worship. Worship him throughout the week, thinking and dwelling on God and praising him. Uh, Hallelujah, praise the Lord throughout the week, reading the scriptures and meditating on it, and recognizing that the day is coming in which we will be truly and really in his presence and worshiping him forever. Friends, praise God because heaven is coming. He will bring perfect justice. Not just vengeance. Perfect justice. He will love us forever as a bride. And he alone is worthy. I'm not a very patient person. (laughs) You think I'm patient? You think, well, you're a pastor. You've got to be patient. No, talk to my wife. I'm not the most patient person. I hate waiting. Well, here's a secret I've learned about patience. Time goes by a lot faster when you have something to do. You notice that? <laughs> if you're watching a clock, it'll be your longest day ever, right? If you sit there and stare at a clock, it take, time just goes by, seems to go by so much slower when you stare at a clock. But if you're active and you're busy, you know, you stay active and stay busy at your job or whatever you're doing, you say, wow, where did the time go? <laughs> it just flew by. We're waiting. We're called to be patient until the day in which God, Christ, comes back and his people enjoy his presence forever. But that doesn't mean we sit around watching the clock. (laughs) We have work to do. We have a mission. God has called us 
I'll just speak for myself. He's called me to be the best husband I can be and the best father. He's called me to work hard at my job, which is to be a good pastor for you guys. And he's called me to share the good news. He's called you to the same things, depending on what your life situation is. Knowing that, eventually, either this day will come, or we'll pass on, whatever comes first. Thomas Akempa said, Tomit today, man is, tomorrow he is gone. Or I love the old hymn, softly and tenderly, time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. It's not something we have to fear. Either that day will come first, we'll pass on and be with this multitude in heaven, or the day will come when Christ returns, and eventually we will say, Hallelujah. In every tongue, in every tribe, in every nation, some from every people in this entire globe, throughout all of history, will join together and sing, Glory! and honor, and praise, and worship belong to our God forever and ever. Until that day, may God keep us faithful. You pray with me. Gracious God in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this snowy day in which your people here at First Baptist are gathered together to worship you as we prepare for heaven. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, Lord, who has come to redeem a people for himself, forever, for all eternity. Father, strengthen our faith. For those here who trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior and as Lord, have begun a relationship with him, have heard this invitation, this invitation to this great wedding feast, and have responded to this invitation by coming to know the Lord Jesus, Lord. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be patient and yet stay busy. Stay working faithfully for you in honor of you. Stay preparing the white linen for that great day, spirit-empowered works as we await the day in which we will be with you forever. We know that perfect justice is coming. We know, Lord, that you love us as your people. We know that you alone are worthy. And I pray for anyone here again, Lord, who is thinking through this, still considering where they're at in terms of their faith. Do they truly know the Lord Jesus? Have they met him? Have they begun a relationship with him? We pray, Father, that you would draw them into fellowship with you. Show them how good, how gracious, how beautiful, and how loving you are, that they might enjoy life to its full as you have called us and meant it to be as we await this day in which we'll be with you. Bless us as we worship, Lord, and thank you for our time together as your people gathered. In Christ's name we pray, amen.